We'll be in Matthew chapter 8 this morning. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 34, as we see some lessons in discipleship from Jesus this morning. I'll read these verses in just a moment. We're going to see this central idea as we consider kind of three lessons that Jesus teaches us with this kind of this idea at the heart of all of them, and that is this, that the daily cross precedes the eternal crown. The daily cross precedes the eternal crown. I'll begin reading in Matthew 8, verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters." The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Well, this morning as we begin this study together, we'd like to draw our minds back maybe 150 years or so to a man by the name of J.C. Ryle. Now, probably uh, many of you have not heard of this man. He was a pastor in England in the 19th century. He was an evangelical Anglican pastor, and he was well known for his preaching and the large number of people who came to Christ through his preaching. In particular, at a time in the Industrial Revolution and post-Industrial Revolution, he was very gifted at kind of reaching the blue-collar field worker, factory worker, and many of them came to Christ uh, through his ministry. Now, he himself became a Christian. Uh, he walked into church one day. He was not a particularly religious person, but it actually wasn't, wasn't the preached word because the gospel wasn't preached clearly that day. But he sat, he opened his Bible, and as part of the service, they read Ephesians chapter 2. And that day as he sat in the service and he heard, For by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God shined the light of faith in his heart, and he became a Christian. He became a follower of Jesus. But as he preached the gospel, he saw many come to Christ, and yet as he saw many coming to Christ, he also dealt with many who kind of were, I'll say, attracted by the crowds and yet didn't truly understand the gospel. And as I read this week, I came across this quote, and I don't read a lot of quotes, but this one was just very powerful and struck me, and so I thought I would start here this morning because in many ways it encapsulates what we'll be looking at this morning. And he begins by saying this, nothing has done more harm to Christianity 
than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of his experience. It has been painfully forgotten that numbers alone do not make strength, and that there may be a great quantity of mere outward religion, while there is very little real grace. Let us all remember this. Let us keep nothing back from inquirers after Christ. Let us not enlist them on false pretenses. Let us tell them plainly that there is a crown of glory at the end. But let us tell them no less plainly that there is a daily cross in the way. So as we dive into this this morning, I'm, I'm confronted by the fact that Jesus, again, is a little bit confrontational in what he says here this morning. It's sort of not my, my favorite kind of tone as we dive in, but we kind of got two things that Scripture holds intention and that Jesus does holds intention this morning. So the bottom line is that we want as many people as possible to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the point of evangelism. That's the point of discipleship is calling people to follow Jesus. So you have stories like we find in Acts chapter 16 where there's the Philippian jailer. There's an earthquake. The doors spring open. The jailer is about to kill himself. God saves him and all the prisoners there. And then he cries out and he says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, it's very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved. So you have a moment like that where the gospel is very simple, very easily received. You have a moment like this that's a little bit difficult, a little bit more confusing. Uh, two men come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we want to be followers. We want to know you. And in both cases, what Jesus says is not, is not it's easy, just follow me. Or it's easy, pray a prayer. What he actually says is he puts his finger on something going on in their heart. Now, we don't have kind of the, the omniscience of Jesus to know what's going on in someone's heart. What we see Jesus do here is put his finger really on their idol. There's something that they're cherishing, holding in their heart. And so they, they're like, I want this idol and I want Jesus too. I want, I want my family and I want Jesus too. I want my riches, my career, and I want Jesus too. I want my Hennessy and I want some Jesus too. And so they're holding on to something and Jesus knows that. And so they come and there's this, there's this hesitation in, in their heart. And, and Jesus puts his finger right on this point. It's sort of a pressure point. And so he says, following me does offer this eternal crown of glory. There is heaven to follow, but the point is that there is a daily cross in the way. And so the first lesson that we see here this morning is this, that following Jesus requires wholehearted commitment. Following Jesus requires wholehearted commitment. So in verse 19, we have a scribe. Now, if you remember scribes as we walk through Matthew, they're not generally friends to Jesus. They're people who really oppose a lot of what he's doing. And yet we find a scribe coming to him and saying, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, this is the kind of commitment that would make any Christian excited, isn't it? I mean, you can you just like dream of situations like this. It's like someone just tell me how to follow Jesus. And the scribe who represents a group of people who are very opposed to what Jesus is doing come to him and say, Jesus, we'll follow you. I will follow you wherever you go. And so if I were Jesus in this moment, I'd be singing hallelujah all the way and be like, come on, buddy, let's go. But Jesus responds in a surprising way. He says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he kind of surprises us and begins to emphasize that following Jesus means that you might have a lonely and difficult life. Well, there's another person there, and this person is called a disciple. So he at some level has committed his life to following Jesus. But he apparently needs some time off. And he says, Lord, verse 21, let me first go and bury my father. 
Well, it's likely that uh, this man is in one of two situations in life, and either is kind of honored by Jewish tradition, one of which is that he is an older father, and he's kind of required, committed by tradition and law to care for his father in his old age, to honor his father in this way. And so there's this commitment, and he says, "Uh, Jesus, I can come, but I'm not free to follow you yet. That's, that's one possibility. The other is that his father has passed away and that there's this period of mourning, maybe a week or so, following this, and he still needs to go back and take care of that. Either way, what he's asking for is, Jesus, I want to follow you, but let's just postpone that until I'm done with this. But again, Jesus' response is surprising. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, what he's saying is, this isn't something that you can put off. It's not, it's not something that you can delay. His, his, his instruction is urgent, not just follow me, but be following me. It's like, you, once you start that, that's, there's, not, there's not like a break in that. You keep following me. Now, there's a paradox here because Jesus tells them to do something that's impossible, which is what? Who's going to do the burying? The dead. He says, let the dead bury their dead. Well, it seems that Jesus is using language similar to what Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy, has made you alive. So this same passage, Ephesians chapter 2, right before that passage, uh, those verses that I quoted that saved J.C. Ryle there that day, God takes dead people and he makes them alive. So it seems that what Jesus is saying is, let the spiritually dead people back there bury their physically dead well, it's unlikely that Jesus is forbidding this man from attending his father's funeral. But this example, like the story with the scribe, shows us something about following Jesus. And what's going on in the lives of both of these men is in their hearts, so their words say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, I'll go with you wherever you go. That's what their mouth is saying. But in their hearts, there's a hesitation. You see, crowds tend to be drawn to the positive aspects of the gospel. Eternal life, riches, a place in heaven with Jesus, saved for you. I mean, those are great things. So when Jesus sees about these men that there's something in them that makes them hesitant to follow him with no strings attached, what he does is he takes his finger and he puts it right on their excuse. He's sensing something going on in them. He's saying, following me could cost you everything. It's not, I'll have my life and then add some Jesus to it. Jesus becomes your life. He's saying that that wholehearted devotion to me is the only way to truly follow me. There's no category in Scripture clearly for the, the kind of cultural Christian, for the kind of disciple who fits Jesus into their life if he fits or when he fits. Jesus is demonstrating that we don't want to cheapen the gospel by hiding the cost of discipleship. I mean, sometimes we tend to bury the lead, don't we? I mean, follow Jesus, trust Jesus, and you can have a wonderful life. That's true. But Jesus is saying that's not all there is. In some ways that's true, but ultimately the best things that you'll get from following me are a promise for the next life, not for this one. It's possible for us to represent the gospel in ways that Jesus wouldn't represent it. I mean, Jesus sees crowds, but he knows that crowds in and of themselves aren't necessarily a sign of revival. Words, professions aren't necessarily indications of conversions. And people are drawn to messages of, of positivity and of growth, but they aren't necessarily in and of themselves signs of healthy growth. 
So as we understand discipleship as Jesus defines it, one thing we see here is that, that praying a prayer or being drawn to positive aspects of Christianity aren't necessarily a sign that someone has moved from death to life. So when these people approach Jesus, he basically asks them, are you ready to leave everything and follow me? I mean, it's another way of saying what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, I got to admit, as a kid and as a parent, these are hard words. I'm like, come on, Jesus, cut it out. Like, I don't, I don't do this. Like, come on, you aren't going to ask this of us, are you? But what Jesus doesn't say is, you do you. Jesus says, lose yourself and you will find me. I mean, it's a countercultural message. And there's a part of this that I'm like, come on, let up a little, would you? But Jesus puts his finger right in our hearts, right on the idols of our hearts. He puts his finger like on a pressure point for each of us and asks, will you follow me? So this moves us to our second lesson, which is very closely connected to the first, and this is that following Jesus will cost you your idols. So we'll come back to the middle story, the disciples in the boat on this, in, in this storm, but we're going to jump ahead to the demon-possessed men in the pigs, the third story. So verse 18 tells us there are all these crowds, and Jesus makes some effort to get away from the crowds. And then in verse 28, he's traveled across the other side of the sea, and he arrives in the country of the Gadarenes, this country that they uh, have here. So we have the, this map of Palestine. So in the bottom is the Dead Sea. Jerusalem's in the south here. And then at the top, you have the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' ministry centers here in the northern region for much of his life, much of his ministry anyway. We're going to zoom a little, in a little bit on the Sea of Galilee here. And you have here kind of at the, the north, central, maybe a little bit to the west there, the, down, the town of Capernaum. If you travel east across this map, you see the town of uh, Gergesa. If you look south there of Gergesa, there's kind of in the middle of the wilderness there a town called Gadara. Well, Gadara is part of a region of ten cities that you call the Decapolis. You see that word sometimes in the gospel. It just is a, it's, it's ten cities, uh, Deca, makes sense, right? So ten cities. Well, these are pretty much Gentile towns that are near Israel. But this area, Gadara, this town controls this region all the way up to Gergesa here, which is where Jesus lands with his disciples. They get out of the boat, and as they get out of the boat, they are approached by a couple of men. These men come out from some tombs. These men are demon-possessed, and so these men come out of the tombs, and Matthew tells this story, and so do Mark and Luke. And I think part of this is because this is a very memorable story. I mean, what happens here is something that sticks with everyone who sees it. Well, Matthew, uh, Matthew tells us something, he gives us a little more information, and every gospel tells us something different when they share the same story. And so Mark and Luke uh, observe one man in particular. Matthew says, hey, there are two men here who Jesus helps. But Mark describes the freaky state of one of these men. He said he's naked and terrorizing the people. So he comes out, he's freakish, he's naked, and he's been terrorizing. And so, so fierce, Mark says, that no one could pass that way. So no one even dares go near this place because these men are so dangerous. He's so freakishly strong because of the demons that live in him that they've attempted to bind him with chains, with heavy chains, but he literally shatters the chains. They cannot bind him. Have you ever tried to break a chain? Have you ever tried to break a little gold chain? Have you ever tried to break a log chain? 
I mean, this is not something that the average human being can do. Even someone who could bend an iron bar can't shatter chains. Yet these men are remarkably powerful because of the demons that live inside them. Well, Mark tells us that this man, in addition to being freakishly strong, is always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Have you ever been around someone who is either mentally or spiritually troubled and just crying out? It's a very disconcerting thing. So imagine that someone comes out with, in shackles, but the chains are shattered and they're, they're screaming at you and, and, and they're cut all over with self-inflicted wounds. I mean, self-harm has been around for millennia and this man's torment is proof. Now, there aren't just a few demons here. There are many demons because Mark 5 verse 9 tells us that Jesus asks the demon. So we know there's a demon here and he asks him his name and he says, my name is Legion for we are many. And we don't know exactly the number of demons here, but we do know that that a legion is some 5,600 soldiers in the Roman army. So in other words, there is a lot of demon activity going on here. There are unimaginably terrible forces at work. Well, ironically, the demons instantly recognize who Jesus is. Earlier, he's called himself the Son of Man, but they say to him, we know who you are, and they call him the Son of God. These demons have been terrorizing this district for a while, and it's been impossible to stop them. But the minute that Jesus shows up, just his mere presence, and they know the game is up. They know it's over, verse 31. So they see him, they recognize him, and the demons beg him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into this herd of pigs. They know that there's a word coming, and they're not going to have any choice. They have to obey. They're bound by the word of Jesus. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us how many pigs there are here, but Mark does tell us there are 2,000 pigs in this herd. So it's a gigantic herd representative of a large amount of wealth. Well, Jesus does send out the demons, and these pigs drown in the sea. Now, remember, this is a Gentile region, so you wouldn't have found Jews raising 2,000 pigs, but you find Gentiles doing that because they can touch and eat this kind of meat. Well, when this happens, these demon-possessed men, they're naked, but then they're clothed in their right mind. The people come out to see what happened, and they find these demon-possessed men sitting there and having conversations. Well, this leaves me with a troubling question. Why would Jesus not just deal with the demons, but allow them to devastate the economic well-being of a farmer or group of farmers here? I mean, this is a significant impact. Well, we don't ultimately know the final answer, but I think there are at least two helpful points. And one is that Jesus is highlighting the destructive nature of Satan and his forces. I mean, the destruction of this herd and the consequences for these farmers are a vivid sign of, of what these men have been undergoing. I mean, these men have been out there suffering, kind of on the margins of society, neglected out there, and they've been suffering under the power of these demons, and the minute we get a visible representation of their power, everyone's upset by it. But meanwhile, two men have been oppressed by these demons all this time. Jesus is highlighting that all of God's creation is valuable, and particularly those made in the image of God. He's also highlighting the value of a human being over economic goods. I mean, the salvation of one soul is infinitely greater than these economic assets, even if it's great in value. And in doing this, we see Jesus, he he did it with, he did it with the scribe, he did it with the man who called himself his disciple, and now he does it with this crowd of people from this village. He confronts their idols. He puts his finger, finger on the idols in the culture. I mean, these men have been tortured. They've been terrorizing others. 
Now they're delivered from their torment. They're in their right minds. They're clothed. I mean, these men, they're someone's brothers. They're someone's sons, maybe even someone's fathers. We don't know their whole backstory, but there are people here who know them, love them apart from this. And yet, how do the people respond? Do they rejoice at their deliverance? Do they rejoice at finding these men in their right mind? Do they rejoice at the fact that these men who have been terrorizing people and have been terrorized and tormented themselves are now delivered? No, verse 34, they beg Jesus to leave. I mean, Jesus tells the demons to leave, and now these people tell Jesus to leave. I mean, but note the way that Matthew tells us what happened. The herdsmen do a pretty good job of reporting what happened. So they go back and they tell the people everything But verse 33 tells us that they especially focused, what, on the effect that it had on these men. I mean, the men who are there and see it, the herdsmen, the people who are caring for these these pigs, they see it happen and they say, look, these men have been delivered, they're clothed in their right mind, you would not believe this. So the people hear this good news and how do they respond? They're angry, they're resentful, they're afraid, and they tell Jesus to leave. I mean, imagine that your loved one is the one cutting himself and harming himself, completely losing touch with reality. I mean, perhaps that's a reality in your home, that someone you know or love is experiencing or has experienced symptoms like this. But miraculously, this person is delivered from the psychological and emotional pain that is tearing them up from the inside. I mean, those external cuts, they're just evidence of internal pain. But these people don't see the people They don't see the pain, they only see money running down the hill and drown in the sea. Money is more important than these men, pigs more valuable than people. I mean, God confronts us all in the place of our idols. Your idol might be your kids, or the hope of a marriage, or a career, or maybe good health. There's no doubt that in our culture, one of the chief idols is the the idol of sexual autonomy, the idea that you can do whatever you want with no consequences. And this gospel confronts us here. Does the value of a human life, born or unborn, matter more than sexual freedom or whatever profit can be made in an abortion mill? You see, the genocide of unborn babies is a grotesque sin that deserves the judgment of God. God also requires, though, that we treat all people with with respect, that we listen to sections of our culture that tell us they're experiencing pain, pain because of race, pain because of economic hardship. You see, God's people should be characterized by compassion for the hurting, by compassion for those who are expressing their pain, perhaps even in ways that are uncomfortable and detestable, but their message is, I'm hurting and we need help. And brothers and sisters, we have help, we have hope through the compassion of Jesus, especially for the outcast and the hurting. Yet often, Jesus confronts our idols, our hope for comfort, because when we interact with these kind of things, we think through things in terms of convenience or think through things in terms of legality. And I'm not saying those things don't matter, but Jesus is confronting us here with our hearts of compassion. So, If following Jesus will cost us everything, and if following Jesus puts its finger on our idols, why in the world should we give idols up for following Jesus? And that's because of the third lesson. It's really here in the center of the story. Following Jesus is worth it in the end. Following Jesus is worth it. I mean, there's like all this bad news. 
Jesus, you're going to cost me my, my family. You're going to cost me my economic well-being. Following you will cost me everything. Is there any good news? Well, each of these stories highlights something different about the character of Christ for us. And the center story zeroes in on parts of Jesus' character that really help us this morning. And parts of this passage are confrontational. And we see Jesus with his disciples, even in the boat, he's confrontational with them. But the picture of Jesus that we get here is remarkably encouraging. So the first story, you remember, finds Jesus on one side of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, and he travels across to Gadarene, to Gergesa. But now we're kind of in between. He's on the journey. He's in the boat. The journey across is the key to understanding Jesus is here. Jesus here. So Jesus enters the boat, and we find the disciples follow him. I mean, that's what disciples do. They follow Jesus. Yet in the midst of this journey across, there is this terrible storm. The text says that the boat is swamped, and what this word literally means is that the boat is covered over. In other words, if the boat is this high, the waves are this high. They, they are coming over the boat. They're gigantic waves, and these kind of storms can rise up on the Sea of Galilee. It's a terrifying moment. Anyone would be afraid for their life. It's also a remarkable moment because Jesus isn't afraid. Jesus is sleeping. I mean, come on, dude. Jesus is apparently worn out. Have you ever been in the middle of a terrible storm? I don't mean like hard rain. I mean a storm that made you fear for your life. And can you remember that moment? That's happened only a couple of times to me in my life. But I can remember those times vividly when I've been in a storm like that. Jesus is utterly exhausted from ministry. He's been pouring his life into crowds, and now he's sleeping. Have you ever had the experience of just pouring yourself out, either to people or at work all day? You get home, and it's like, you know, your husband or your wife wants to talk to you, and you sit down, and you try to keep your eyes open. And it's really not a sign of disrespect for the people there, but you're just, you're wiped. I've had moments like that where I sat in a chair, and I was like, I'm out. And, and apparently that's how Jesus feels. I mean, he's, he's just exhausted here. The disciples are panicked, but Jesus is composed. Sailors, professional sailors, as a last resort, turn to a carpenter for help. The disciples' prayer in verse 25 is a good one. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. It's what a fearful person should say. There's a part of us that sees this and sees it as a positive response. And so again, Jesus surprises us. It's like, Jesus, they're coming to the right place. They're coming to the right person for help, and they're asking you for help. Verse 26, instead of just quickly offering help, Jesus says, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Well, a few paragraphs earlier, remember, Jesus was surprised at the remarkable faith that he finds in a centurion, a Gentile. Now it's his own disciples, and he's surprised by the fact that they're so afraid. The phrase, you of little faith, occurs five times in the New Testament. And when Jesus uses it, he always directs it at his own disciples. It always refers to the disciples' lack of faith. One writer says of this moment, he does not chide them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. The prayer of faith is a good prayer. This request is a good prayer. But the disciples' plea is a plea of panic not a prayer of faith. And maybe to help us understand what's going on here, for some of you, this will be a very distant memory. It's a very present reality in my life. Imagine that a young child asks, you know, mom for a snack. You know, mommy, can I have a snack? 
And so mommy says, yes. So the answer is yes, I can give you what you need. But the child is so worked up in this moment that the child begins kind of pitching a fit. Like, I need the snack, I need the snack, give me the snack now. Mommy, meanwhile, is, is fumbling with the snack, right? She, she's going to give, she has the power to give the child the snack. She has the, the will, the desire to, to give the child what the child needs or desires in that moment. But the child is requesting snack, 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 snack. Mommy's giving the child the snack, but the fit doesn't represent really a, a kind of what you would say, requests a good faith. It's the panicky fear that they won't get what they need right now. And that's sort of what you get from the disciples. It's, it's words that are good. Jesus, save us. But it's like the child, snack, 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 save us, save us, save us. It, it's, it's like, come on, dude. You're acting like two-year-olds here. I can give you what you need, but this isn't a request in good faith. It's, it's the panicky fit of a toddler who's afraid that it won't get what it wants. The disciples are afraid that Jesus won't help them. See, Jesus is a Messiah of remarkable power. So he rebukes the disciples, and then he rebukes the sea. Instantly, the sea is calm. I mean, one moment, there are waves bigger than the boat, and the next moment, it's calm. I imagine in this moment, like one minute, you're afraid of the sea, and then the next, you're like, holy cow. What just happened? I mean, storm, wind, waves crashing, you're afraid you're going to die, and then it's calm. This is possibly more terrifying than the storm itself, when you're like, what kind of power does this man have? Matthew says it's a great calm. So it's not like the storm died down. It's just glass. And it's here that we see what's truly going on in the disciples' hearts. Verse 27, the men marveled, saying, what sort of a man is this that even winds and sea obey him? They didn't come to Jesus because they had confidence that he could calm the storm. They came to him because he was their last resort. He was their only hope. I imagine, I mean, these are, these are sailors. These, these disciples, they're fishermen. They know this sea like the back of their hand. Jesus is a country yokel who's a carpenter. He, he makes boats. He doesn't sail boats. And they're bailing water, desperately trying to help themselves. And as a last resort, they turn to Jesus. And yet Jesus, in spite of their lack of faith, saves them. He doesn't save them because of their faith. He saves them in spite of their lack of faith. You see, the failure of their faith isn't so much failure to believe that Jesus could save them. He could do that easily, but also that they didn't recognize who he was. That the eternal Son of God can't die in a storm because he spoke the universe into existence. Like, if you made this, it's not too much for you. You see, following Jesus isn't ultimately possible because of the strength of our faith. Following Jesus is possible only because of grace. But the good news is that Jesus' grace is sufficient for our fear and failure. He doesn't save them because their faith is great. It's not. It's small. It's panic. He saves them because his grace is great. Greater than their lack of faith. Greater than their sin. You see, following Jesus is worth it because Jesus is a remarkable Savior. We're not saved ultimately by the strength of our faith, but by the strength of our Savior. If calling the storm is about faith that can calm the storm, then we miss out. But if calming the storm is about a Savior who has the power to calm the storm, then we've got hope. Yet we can't help but ask, what kind of Savior do we serve? When we find the waves of life crashing, 
and sometimes we say, I'm overwhelmed. It's like this boat is overwhelmed. It's going to capsize. And our comfort and our stability is capsizing. We run around doing everything to save ourselves. And as a last resort, throwing at a lifeline and say, Jesus, you're my only hope. Or do we run to the Savior with confidence that he truly can help? When you cry out to him to save you, is it like the toddler, the cry of panicky fear, Jesus, save me now, because if you don't, or is it a prayer of faith that Jesus can save you? Now, Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to fear. I mean, we'll go a number of chapters and we'll find Jesus in a garden. He'll be praying, and he's afraid. Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And he's, he's just sweating. He's sweating buckets and he's sweating blood. But you can fear and really fear, but still run to Jesus in faith because you know, one, that he is your only hope, and secondly, that he can help you. Confidence that he can do. Jesus isn't physically with us in the boat like he's with the disciples. But has he not said, I will never leave you or forsake you? He's always with you in the boat. Jesus is a God worth trusting, and he is worth trusting every day. Whether we're at the end of our rope or whether we aren't even aware of how great our need is. And so as we close this morning, I just want to say this. That if you have yet to place this kind of trust in Jesus, would you turn from your sin? Would you turn from your self-reliance and trust him today? He will save anyone. He will rescue anyone who comes to him. If he can help disciples who pitch a fit and have little faith, he can help you. Jesus is a savior worth trusting. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk to God and then I'll close this time in prayer. God, I thank you that we serve a Savior who will help anyone who asks him for help. God, I thank you that he is worth following. And God, help us take up our cross to follow Christ. And we know that walking with him will be worth it in the end. So God, help us. Give us hope in him. God, I pray that he would be our reliance, our complete and total trust. God, I pray that as you put your finger on the idols in our hearts, God, that we will see that Jesus is worth following in spite of all that this world offers or in spite of all that we imagine we can have elsewhere. God, we'll trust him and follow him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to respond to the word now in worship. As we do this and sing, if the Lord is leading you to respond in particular ways, we'd love to talk with you about that, to follow the Lord in baptism, to learn more about Jesus, or if there's anything that we can help you with or pray with you. Jesus ultimately is our hope. But often that help comes to us through uh, relationships, friends, community in the body of Christ. Uh, so if the Lord's working in your heart, we'd love to talk with you about that now or later throughout this week. Any way that we can serve you, we'd love to know that. Would you stand please to your feet? Uh, we'll sing together.
face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen. Have a wonderful day.